We have an extraordinarily special guest today, another libertarian YouTuber, the fantastic, the wonderful Scotty M. Yeah, I'm a libertarian, of course. I've been on YouTube for a wee while now, for the past four years, I'd say. Obviously, I've changed channel, but under the name Libertarian Scott, I'm an ardent defender of the free market. And, you know, it's just something I'm very passionate about, getting the message out of liberty and been to several of the meetings of the Scottish Libertarians and I fully advocate everything that they support and stand by. So a lot of the work you've done has been around debunking popular myths, especially here in Socialist Scotland, about the free market and capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I think you've had some considerable success in the past. You've had some videos that were very well viewed and you're an articulate speaker. And so I thought a great topic for our discussion today would be what people don't know about capitalism. What are those myths that so many people, especially here in Scotland and probably all over the Western world these days believe about capitalism and why are they wrong? Well, I think one of the, the biggest myths that you're going to hear is people seem to believe this myth that capitalism is pro-business and it's it's probably the biggest um well it's one of By that the, do you mean pro-big business well it's not it's not just a case of pro-big business it's a case of they think that capitalism is all about pro-business and they don't understand that what capitalism is essentially all about is pro-consumer because they confuse capitalism with corporatism and capitalism is essentially all about pro-consumer is driven by consumer demand in a free market economy which is in reference after all capitalism is about the separation of the economy from government and capitalism being about pro-consumer means that businesses are forced into competition they're forced to look after their reputation and in other words it's through consumers choice and consumer demand that forces businesses to provide a service. Now, if you're not in, in a free market under a capitalist system, if you are basically a business owner and you don't pay attention to your consumers, you're going to lose consumers to your other competition. And that's the thing because this is what capitalism is all about. It's all about pro-consumer because it's the consumer that really dictates everything. They dictate prices and all the rest of it. Whereas yeah. they confuse capitalism with corporatism, where corporatism is more of a monopolistic system. And that's one of the biggest myths that you'll always hear. They, they don't understand that what capitalism essentially is, is all about a, a, a system where monopolies cannot take form. It's only because of states' interference through the intervention that that occurs but essentially capitalism is pro-consumer because it's the consumer that determines not just cost but of course what is going to get produced how so much would, you, produced. would you say that, that corporatism is synonymous with crony capitalism well this is the thing they love to throw around this name or these names such yeah. as monopoly capitalism crony capitalism state capitalism and there's no such thing there is only okay. one capitalism and capitalism is the separation of the economy from government. So I would be right in saying what we have now, by your definition, is not capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Because 
capitalism is the separation of the economy from government and the best way to look at the whole economics and politics thing the best way to look at it is a scale and the question of scale is all about this do you have an economy free from government where you have strong private ownership in other words true private ownership where the market regulates itself after all there is only two forms of regulation you've either got state regulation or the market that's going to regulate itself the question of capitalism capitalism is all about the market that self-regulates whereas socialism is about getting government to regulate and we know there's never been a hundred percent capitalism we understand that but with that being well, said, according to some socialists, there's never been 100% socialism either. Exactly. And, and, and it's true. it couldn't be because in any case, people are going to want to trade. So you've mentioned a lot there I just want to pick up on. First, mm. when you say that capitalism is pro-consumer, we should bear in mind that everyone is a consumer. So what's good mm. for the consumer is good for everyone. Mm. And in one way where the Marxists went wrong is, they only saw workers in their capacity as producers. They mm -hmm. didn't see workers as consumers as well as producers because they're thinking, well, capitalism is pushing the price of goods down, which means there won't be much money left for the workers. The capitalists will have to squeeze their workers. But what they don't realize is with the falling price of all goods, the same amount of money will be worth less. Now, I'd like to come back to your point about free market monopolies a little bit later, but mm -hmm. I thought as evidence of what you're saying about corporatism, according to the Sunlight Foundation, $5.8 billion were spent on federal lobbying and campaign contributions by America's 200 most politically active corporations between 2007 and 2012. For every dollar they spent buying politicians, they got $741 in return. Now, as soon as businesses have more to gain from bribing the government than by serving their customers, then the government essentially has become their customer, not their consumers. And I think this is what people really have to understand about the incentives of having a government that intervenes in the economy because the government becomes their customer instead of the consumer. And that's not the only cost of that. It's not just all that that money wasn't spent serving consumers. It's also all the time the accountants, the lawyers, the bureaucrats, the actuaries, the government people, every single person involved in that lobbying process yeah. was doing that in something that would have raised people's standards of living. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make one more point because yep. you said the point about capitalism is the consumer is king. The difference between that and a government doing something is when the government does something, you don't have any say at all whether you want it or not because you already bought it through the tax system. Whereas on the capitalist free market, you have a choice between service providers and if someone offers you a dodgy good you should have recourse in the courts or you just don't buy them again when the government is providing services you don't have any choice so what's their incentive to offer you the best service or the best value 
a few points there, and this is quite interesting. The first point I want to touch upon, of course, was what you're speaking about there with regards to the consumer and the government there. The people need to realise that the government doesn't work for that money. It simply takes it through taxation. Now, everybody's faced with what we yeah. call a risk and a return. Now, when you earn and you work hard for your money, you're going to take into consideration the risks of what you have with your money. You have that that risk of, of losing everything. The government, on the other hand, really does not. When the government takes control over anything, it could be healthcare, it could be education, it could be anything. It all relates back to Ludwig von Mises' argument on prices in 1920 to do with the economic calculation problem. Because once the government essentially distorts the information of market-driven prices, which are driven by the consumer, then of course, through government's distortion of prices, it can no longer rationally calculate. And essentially what basically happens is the government destroys the information of what to produce more of, how much to produce, where to allocate scarce resources, what to invest more in. As soon as it destroys that information, it can't provide for what people's needs and wants are. Therefore, it finds it easier to take on the attitude of, we will produce for what we think is best for the people. And then there is no better quotation than a democratic, oh, well, it's a oxymoron, but a democratic yeah. socialist politician, Jay Douglas, who was of the Labour Party before Thatcher's period. And he said, the gentlemen of Whitehall really do know what's best for British people than the British people do themselves. In other words, they couldn't possibly know the information of people's needs and wants, so they took on that attitude. That was the, the, the main issue to do with okay, that. Just, just to back up a little bit, I mean, I mean, you've said, you know, that with government, and both you and Anthony have said, you know, with government, people don't have a choice, but the classic retort to that will always be, well, that's not true, you know, you can vote the government out, and the government, if it doesn't do its job properly, you know, it'll be worried about them, you'll be worried about losing their seat at the next election, they'll be worried they're getting put out of power, so that's why government, you know, has to be careful and take care of the of their consumers, so to speak. That's the classic kind of retort to that. Although they can respond with that, it wouldn't matter yeah. what government they put in. It wouldn't matter what style of government because as soon as government takes control over anything in relation to do with prices, because after all, that's what government ownership is all about. Government ownership takes control of prices. As soon as the government does so, you're going to end up with the inefficiency and it's not going to serve people's needs and wants. Yeah. Because it's impossible for any politician to know the information of, and yeah. simply because only the consumer can know best. And here's the funny part, <laughs> because people love to say, well, the government knows better. For people to say that and people to say that they have no faith in the people knowing best yeah. for people, they have to take into consideration, yeah. well, ask yourself the question, what is government? What is government made up of? Well, government's people. made up of people. people. So <laughs> Yeah, I think they believe that an intellectual class will be able to make better decisions than... And it's yeah. hard. Well, then why not just have a technocracy? Yeah, exactly. Why even let people vote if they can't make market decisions? So I think there's a tendency for intellectuals to think, well, look, people make stupid decisions every day. We should just get experts in to figure out what would be best for people. And that's going to be intuitive if you're intelligent because you think you can make good decisions. But in real real life, 
there's no committee of experts that's going to be make better decisions than millions of people making tiny decisions every day. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Ludwig von Mises. Hayek explained based on his knowledge of Mises that no one has the information to centrally plan an economy. Yes. And even if they did, that information is constantly changing in real time. Yeah. People's behaviors, their values, their preferences, mm -hmm. their ideas, their expectations and knowledge change constantly and in unpredictable ways. And that's great because that means we're not robots. Yeah. So that information which is required to plan an economy is evenly distributed amongst every single person and it's expressed every time you make a transaction or choose not to make one. Every mm -hmm. time you decide, oh, that's too expensive or I'm going to buy that because it's on offer. Every time you recommend something to someone else, every time you tell someone not to buy something, that information is in a constantly self-correcting mechanism yes yeah. sometimes inferior products will be produced mm -hmm. i mean betamax did better than vhs even though Be betamax was better but in the long term dvd won out over both of them which what? shows that the market produces the best solution over time exactly. and that's the thing that makes good decisions about planning an economy the interplay of constant of everyone in the economy making decisions uh, i just wanted to add one point sometimes an entrepreneur be knows better than their customers henry ford said if i asked people what they wanted they would have said faster horses but it's the free market that allows a maverick like that to mm -hmm. take the lead in the economy whereas anyone who has a stupid idea and tries to ignore their customers on the free market will not win out in the long term you know some people might buy the inferior product but those bad decisions are limited to a small number of people whereas when the government does it those bad decisions if they're spread out across the economy can be disastrous because they can affect everyone badly an interesting point because uh, as you're saying about how it opens up henry ford being a perfect example and uh, as tammy had mentioned earlier when he questioned about big business and I was saying about pro-consumer, an interesting point there, and this is in relation to do with the, the myths of capitalism. One of these myths is that, you know, people have got it into their head that big business is the problem. It's not big business that is at fault. It's essentially the system that is in place. It's government that is at fault. It's very important to point this distinction out. One of the greatest examples it was, of course, uh, John Davis and Rockefeller. Now, they love to use the myth about how, of course, John Davis and Rockefeller gained this, uh, you know, a monopoly when in real fact they never. Standard Oil never held the monopoly. They did have competition on their back. But here's the thing. It was his business that opened the door to Henry Ford's automobile industry and greatly reduced the costs of the oil, right down to yeah. about 5.9 cents per barrel of oil and made the whole of society richer as a result of that. That was big business that did that. And, and that's, that's why big business is so important to us. Today, it's a case that because of government intervention, then big businesses feel they can take advantage. And this is, this is me targeting people who are 
perhaps Keynesians, people who support the mixed economy. My yeah. message to those people is the fact that if you're going to have a mixed economy where competition is available, where a private sector is available, big businesses are going to take advantage of that and they will lobby and pay off the politicians. And therefore, when you give the government a sniff, the government yeah. will go where the money is. And that's why you need to limit government's power. Yeah. And in and, and that case, when government intervenes, then big business becomes a problem. But that's only because government yeah. is, is picking I and mean, choosing winners and losers. I suppose a classic historical example of like, you know, big business getting into bed with government with the British East India Company. You know, when people bring that up to me, I go, well, look, this, these companies had a royal charter. That's you know, they, they had, you know, they had the stamp had of approval with yeah. the government. And when they ran into trouble, you know, the government sent the army in at taxpayers' expense to bail them out instead of saying, look, you know, this is a private venture. You made a lot of profit here. You guys have screwed it up. Sort it out yourselves, you know? But yeah. then the, the troops came in at the back of that because government backed these people up. They had a royal charter. They were, they were in effect, a monopoly because the government gave them that monopoly or the Crown gave them that monopoly. Would you agree with that? It's sadly one of these things, you know? Um, I completely agree with what you're saying. And we've seen all sorts of bailouts, obviously, since the crisis in 2007, 2008. Oh, that, a bailout is not a feature of a free uh, market. This, this, that is the government in bed with business. And whenever they do that, they're lowering the risk. And this, you're is, talking, yeah. this is one of the biggest myths. Sorry for buttoning in, but it's yeah. one of the things I'm so, so passionate, you know, because I don't know how many times I've seen people coming across and saying, oh, the banking crisis was the fault of capitalism. It's all yeah. the fault of deregulation. It's the unregulated market's fault. And people like Tommy Sheridan get away with speaking this sort of rhetoric because people don't know any better. But you see, the fact of the matter is, number one, the biggest myth of that whole banking crisis, blaming it on regulation in general, first and foremost, mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with regulation. It's because the bad banks became too big to fail. Now, why did they become too big to fail? They became too big to fail because of socialist government protectionism, capitalizing on all the gains, and socializing the losses. Basically, and people misinterpret what this whole thing means of capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich. Capitalism for the poor does not mean capitalism is making poor people poor. And it doesn't mean socialism's making rich people rich. It, all it means is that people are paying money. The element, however, where government forces through coercion to force taxpayers' money out of their hands, that element is socialist. And the redistribution of that wealth to fund the losses of them, it means these big businesses or these bad banks yeah. get to live for free of all their own losses. And here's the thing, because this is the, the big myth. Capitalism and the truth is all about the market, the free and voluntary exchange in the marketplace where an exchange cannot take place unless both parties agree upon that exchange. Through this bailout system, part of this is to blame on socialism in this mixed economy. Yeah, yeah and it's interesting how the, the left did not attack the bailouts in the way that we would well that i would have which is they were saying oh you know this isn't fair and we shouldn't we shouldn't be giving money to the rich which is of course true but mm. they didn't attack it on the fundamental point which is what gives government the right to go in and take people's money 
and then give it to someone else. And of course, they are not in the position of being able to make that argument because they don't believe in it consistently. Yeah. It would undermine most of the programs which they think are going to enrich the poor. But what you what they do is instead of calling it a bailout, they just say they're nationalising the bank, and that leads ordinary people to think, oh, we're gaining something out of this. At least it belongs to us now. Which and, is, and the completely. left were calling yeah. for the nationalisation of the yeah, bank. Yeah, absolutely, and it's an argument. And on the right, I think the scary thing was this was an the too big to fail argument was an argument that never worked for the mines quite rightly, never worked for the car industry quite rightly why it should work for the banks. And, and the, the very scary thing is, if too big to fail stands as a, a logical reason to bail out banks the first time, there is absolutely no reason why too big to fail wouldn't be a logical reason to do it the second time, the third time, the fourth. When, when would you stop? If too big to fail is the major reason for doing it, that can never end. One institution that's definitely big to fail, and that's the government because see if the government runs out of money as some people say it has been or is then all those people who are dependent on the social programs like yep. free healthcare, welfare education the poor are most vulnerable the government is too big to fail there were local grassroots organizations that provided these services and they do not exist anymore because now people think well if the government doesn't do it it doesn't get done yep here's the thing so, i mean there's several points the first quick point i want to make and then i'll, I'll get on to speaking about that whole thing with the too big to feel thing yeah and of course the banking crisis but what was mentioned there and i want to make this point and this is in relation to do with, although it's a slightly different, is to do with loans. Yeah. In the free market, private lenders would not lend their money to people they could not trust, to people they know are not going to pay them back. Right? Because why would any private lender risk losing their money by handing it out to someone they know is not going to pay them back, right? So because the private lender was not going to lend to those type of people, what government loans, the reason why government loans came to existence, was government was going to take that money and give it to the people who were going to be incompetent with it. And that's the yeah, reason yeah. for government taking that sort of money. The second point I want to reiterate is on this whole thing to do with the, the too big to fail. And again, it relates to risk and return. Just like the whole thing with the loans and everything, the risk and return. At the end of the day, the government is taking their risk away from them and saying, it doesn't matter about any losses that you make as bad banks you can get away with doing whatever you like because we're going to get the taxpayer to pay for it all. And when you create that sort of atmosphere where they feel they can get away with anything, it created what was known as legally protected fraud. Now, here's the most important thing. Whenever someone tells you that, oh, it was deregulation that caused the banking crisis, put this forward to them. Between 2001 to 2012, the FSA, Financial Services Authority, 
were the UK banking regulator. They, they held control over the UK banking regulations between 2001 and 2012. We know the banking crisis happened in 2008. Guess yeah. what? The FSA handbook was more than 10,500 pages long in regulations. So there was 10,500 pages of regulations on the banks. Yeah, so it, although regulation had nothing to do with the banking crisis as such, the banks were over-regulated. Well, I would argue that the banks were regulated in such a way that would cause a crisis because supposing you went to a casino and you were allowed to bet with someone else's money, if you get to keep it when you spin the roulette table, but you uh, someone else loses it if you don't, you're going to make the most risky bets. And there's all these things like these uh, financial innovations, they called them, where someone was selling a package of, say, 100 mortgages, which seemed like a good idea yeah. because if one mortgage pair doesn't pay back, you've got your risk spread around 100 houses. But in an economy where the housing market is massively regulated, you can't build new houses, this, that, yeah. and the other, and you've got this printing of money, which when you print money, it makes it look like there's more real capital in the economy than there is. I think Mises explained this by saying, imagine you had enough bricks to build a hundred houses, right? But it looked like you had enough bricks to build 110 houses. Well, you start the projects, and this is what happens when people print money, or we'll start all 110 projects. And then at some point you realize that you've got less bricks than you thought you had. And you actually have to scrap some of the buildings that you started building, which mm -hmm. means you lose all that labor yeah. Not all of the bricks will be able to use, and you might only be able to end up building 90, when in the first place you had the potential to build 100. That is not a free market phenomenon. Yeah, because it's it's like and, you say there, because that, that's the whole thing with regards to artificially driving up demand in an area where the, there is a shortage, and that's essential that you've explained there. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Unfortunately, that does cause the whole bubble and the prices to rise. This actually kind of ties in with another myth of capitalism. Yeah, how many times you heard this? Look, it was the capitalist system that caused the Great Depression. It was the capitalist system that caused the Wall Street crashes. And thank God for government. Thank God for FDR. Yeah. What, do, what do we say to that one? Right. This has always been so frustrating. Yeah. The reason for why the Great Depression happened was a fault of the Federal Reserve intervening. The key word there is intervening with the market. Yeah. In the year 1922, the Fed, and this is America's Great Depression, the Federal Reserve, using open market operations in 1922, took control over the monetary supply, stripped the, the temporarily the gold standard from the what would become the fiat currency they were printing the fiat currency out of thin air they were manipulating interest rates changing reserve ratios all of which led to bubble after bubble inflation and then deflation and of course the, the great depression now the biggest myth is then for them to turn and say well it was fdr that was the savior now there are statistics there 
and mm. I could provide you with those statistics so you can put them in the description area below and I would suggest people to look at them because he was said to have reduced unemployment. To a certain degree, this is true. But in 1931, and even in 1929, shall we say, the unemployment rate was far lower than what FDR could ever get at. In other words, when FDR took over, he only got unemployment down to about 14-odd percent. And then, in 1937-38, we faced what was known as the Roosevelt Recession. And, uh, and unemployment soared right back up to 19%. And the truth is, the real recovery and, and, and start of the recovery didn't begin until after the Second World War in 1947. And that destroys the whole myth of this whole New Deal. Yes, we're told to believe that Franklin D. Roosevelt saved America from the Great Depression, when in fact, all throughout the Roaring Twenties, the Federal Reserve was printing money like no one's business, which is like taking lots of drugs and having a really great night. And of course, the hangover came in the Thirties, and we were told to believe that Herbert Hoover was some free marketeer when actually he was responsible for massive interventions into the economy that people can find out if they want to by downloading a very short book called Great Myths of the Great Depression. And I believe that's a free ebook that anyone who wants to know more can download. Now, the idea that government spending can boost the economy, here's a very important myth, because this is what we're hearing now these days, is just plain silly, because you need to take money from somewhere to spend it somewhere else. So if you tax these people over here to build roads uh, or great infrastructure, then, okay, you might be starting jobs and roads, but all the money was doing here was someone was going to buy a factory that was going to produce stuff that was going to employ people. Then they'd take it out and spend it in the shops. And so you're just taking it from over here, spending some on bureaucracy and then whatever's left putting over here. That can actually have a damaging effect. Because imagine, let's say the car industry has been gradually failing, right? Yeah. Because people want less cars. If we take the money from somewhere over here and bail the whole back cars industry out or just stimulate the economy oh i've got more money i'm going to buy more cars but the fact still remains that the demand for cars has been slowly slowly falling now a whole bunch of people have gone out and bought cars right yeah then what's going to happen well i'm not going to replace my car for five years instead of gradually the car factories closing down one by one yep. all of a sudden they're all going to close down at the same time Interesting that you mentioned that because this was identical and this is the best one of all. And you know what this one is because you've heard it so many times within Scotland and, and elsewhere and uh, it's all to do with the coal industry. Right. The coal industry was the fantastic example because not only was the coal industry overmanned, the problem was, was the fact that the taxpayers were paying out high taxation Therefore, there was going to be less productivity during that period of uh, the Labour governments and Conservative governments, but it was heavy nationalisation and stuff. But anyway, the coal industry was heavily making losses. 
the the heavy industries that coal depended upon went into decline. So it was losing business. North Sea oil and uh, gas had taken over and they were moving away from coal gas. That was going to take a further hit on the coal industry. Domestic heating moved away from the whole issue to do with coal. And all of these things, and plus the fact there was cheaper foreign coal. This is the whole yeah. point of the free market. Don't, for, don't forget we joined a common market as well. And yeah. you know, the, pretty much the, the industrial side of that thing was sewn up by the... That was the deal. The Germans were uh, going to take... So the whole issue was, was the fact that you cannot prevent or hinder the fact that people can get cheaper foreign coal elsewhere. But here's the point, and here's the issue. That coal industry was long in decline and they wanted to continue on bailing that failure out. <laughs> what, what does bailing failure out do? All it does is it makes the taxpayer poorer as a result of it. Yes, yeah, so they've less money to spend on consumer products that they actually want exactly. that would stimulate the economy. So, so whilst we were moving towards cleaner alternative sources of power, they were wasting money in areas where there was no, no longer a demand. And yeah. that's right. people don't comprehend. The demand for coal was going out the door and it was being replaced by something else. And that demand was going towards the likes of North Sea oil. Because as we know, in the 1970s, that's when they started you know, properly drilling for oil um, and it became a very, very big thing. And again, it relates back to that whole issue. People don't understand it's the consumer that really knows best. It's the yeah. consumer that determines um, what their needs and wants are. And the government... I mean, we coal as well. I mean, people forget. Just, I know it sounds like a small point, but uh, I mean, when I grew up, when I was, when I was a kid, you know, my grandparents, there was a coal fire in that house till, you know, I was in my late teens, maybe even in, in the 20s. You know, and nearly at one point, as a kid, I've, almost every house in that neighbourhood, in that scheme, and like all over, you know, Belsip, it was all coal fires that people had steadily. Mm -hmm. That was replaced by, you know, central heating, as you say, oil and gas. So, yeah, the, the, you know, the demand dropped. And then what else is going to happen when demand drops? So exactly I, I, I want to pick up on one of your the things you said last, which was that the consumer knows best. And I think that a nuanced contradiction from the left, which seems definitely superficially plausible at least, is that, well, you talk about the consumer knowing best, and but in reality, in the market, the only demand that is met is the demand of people that can pay for it. That means that the poorest people in countries can never get what they want because they're incapable of generating the demand to buy anything. So only the demand of people with resources is going to be represented in your system. And it's democracy that caters to the demand of, of those people who don't have who don't have any cash to spend voting. That seems like quite a compelling objection to what we've been saying, to be fair to the left. And what would be your response to that? My response is the very fact that nothing is... We're not painting anything as pure perfection. Because if you were to look at the alternative, the alternative is more or less going down the lines facing with the economic calculation problem. And and, and it's sad to say, you end up with the massive big long waiting lines with shortages. Now, 
my response Can you guys just quickly explain the economic calculation problem to maybe those who've never heard that term and phrase before? You take it. The economic calculation problem is in relation to do with prices. There is nothing in economics more important than the information of prices. Okay. Yeah. And, and briefly, just to touch upon it, the study of economics is really all about our place on this earth. It's not about finances. And it's about how do we better improve the living standards of the masses whilst using the fewest resources as possible? How do we achieve that? And so because there are scarce resources, and what does scarce resources mean? Scarce resources simply means that resources are finite. They're not infinite. So the question then is how do we allocate those scarce resources into commodities so that we can efficiently provide for the market without causing waste? Now, this is where the information of prices comes into it because there's nothing yeah. in economics more important than the information of prices because people think prices, and this is one of the problems that the left have, they don't really understand what prices are. People on the left tend to think prices are... Arbitrary. Yeah, they think prices are an obstacle to getting the things that they want. They don't realise that prices are signals. So when you destroy the signals, when you destroy the information of prices, you end up destroying the very information that allows you to efficiently allocate resources to know what to produce and all the rest of it. I just wanted to give a quick yeah. concrete example of that, right? Supposing you go to a coffee shop, right? And coffee's 220 and tea's 180, right? There's gonna be a cer certain percentage of people who just get whatever they want, yeah. and a certain percentage of people who might even buy the tea because, oh, it's less expensive. That means they've got 40 pence more to spend on something else other than a coffee because mm -hmm. they prefer the utility of the 40 pence to the greater pleasure they might get from drinking a coffee. Yep. Now, without that information, too much coffee gets produced because that 40 pence also represents maybe the extra price of transporting the coffee or something, the extra labor cost of making the coffee. That price, it's a trivial example, but it's just to exemplify the fact of throwing extra resources at mm -hmm. stuff that people would otherwise want if mm -hmm. not for the price differential. You don't want to waste extra resources that yeah. produce less utility for people. So yeah. you want those prices to make sure the resources get pushed towards producing well, the things that, yeah. that, that maximize utility. And you can use, if you don't like the word utility because it's impersonal, just say standards yeah. of living. That's I mean, you, all you've made the point, sorry Scott, you made the point that you know that the left don't understand how pricing works. I would put it to you that people in general, right across the board, don't really understand how pricing works. So, Do you agree so, with that? It's so, so. What Tam has just said there, because I was about to say that, I don't think it's specified just to the left. There are mm. so, so many people who claim to be, you know, conservatives. There were even UKIP supporters and stuff like that. And a lot of people really, they, they don't comprehend what prices are. They don't know what the economic calculation problem is. And, and what I'm going to get at, because... This is in relation to do with the signals of high prices, low prices, the laws of supply and demand, and most importantly, a high price 
can signify something very important to us. Yes. That that I want to address, but I'll address that last. First and foremost, there's two most important pieces of information in prices, and nothing's more important than this. You have profits, and you have your losses. Now, profits and losses can only really rationally be calculated through consumers' demand, the free market, right? Because let's say I ran a business or you ran a business. At the end of every month, you can rationally calculate, you can see what your consumers are spending most of. You can see what your consumers are spending less of. You can see what they're buying and what they're not buying. Now, what, what information is the consumer saying to the business owner when they buy these products, their most bought products? Well, the business owner can look at his most bought products or her own most bought products, and he or she can say, this is what we're selling most of, therefore, this is what consumers want more of. Right. And the, the goods that they're not buying, the consumer is saying to the business, just through spending, just through consumer choice, the consumer's saying, this is what we don't want, and therefore, why would any business owner produce more of what consumers are not going to buy? Because that, therefore, would mean a business would make losses, because a goal, the goal of any private business is to make profit. Even the left can understand that. Therefore, mm. a private well, business... You can only make profits by serving customers as long as it's a free exactly. market. And this is what they really need to understand. If yeah. it's a free market, the only way you buy profits is by producing things that people would rather buy than anything else they could buy. Yeah. So I think what people choose to buy is about as accurate a measure of what they value as we can come up with, except for maybe how they spend their time. Here's the other important point though, right? Okay. From that information of profits and losses, the profits tells the market, tells the businesses, tells the market, we know what to produce more of, therefore we know what natural resources to take from. We know what natural resources, where that natural resources are going to go into the market efficiently without causing waste because you're producing for what consumers want. They also know how much to produce because of that information and they know what to invest more in. They also know the information from losses from where consumers are not spending. They know this is what we're going to stop producing because why would we want to produce what's making a loss? We're not going to waste valuable scarce resources by allocating into this part of the market because why would we want to do so? We're not only going to waste valuable scarce resources, uh, we would be making a loss in doing so. There's no point in doing that. And therefore, they know what to stop investing in. Now, that's why the, the information of profits and losses is so vitally important and only the market can determine that. Once the government artificially raises or lowers the cost above or below market value. Now, for people who may not understand what market value is, market value is what the free market determines. In other words, the consumer's determining cost, right? What they choose to buy yeah. and what they choose not to it's, buy. It's all well saying, well, 
Apple could raise the Apple iPhone to £2,000, but the bottom line is consumers will always seek an alternative and there is only a limit that consumers will accept. The point being is the fact that with government artificially raising or lowering costs, this causes a distortion of that information. Therefore, it destroys the information of all of those signals so it no longer knows the information of where to allocate scarce resources, what to produce more of, what to invest more in, what to stop producing, where to stop allocating scarce resources, what to stop investing in. It doesn't know that information. And so what happens is, is what we call the misallocation of scarce resources. Yeah. The misallocation of scarce resources, a prime example of it is the British NHS that the government overproduces allocates into the wrong parts of the market and therefore causes a neglect in the most needed parts of the healthcare market and causes a massive big long waiting line. So yes, it, sometimes people die yeah. uh, on waiting lists for conditions. Well talking of people dying, I mean this is all very well you guys you know your fancy economics you know and you're, it all sounds very logical. What about the human aspect? You know I mean if it wasn't for government you know, your free market, you know, your, your grasping capitalists would still be sending kids up chimneys, you know, would still be, they'd be you know, would, people would be dying uh, every day in the workplace through workplace accidents because employers don't give a shit about the workers' conditions. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a standard uh, left-wing uh, trope. I mean, how, how do you answer that, you, you pair of grasping capitalist pigs? Here's the thing, that, that the whole... In American history, and this is why I studied American history, not just British, you know, industrial revolution history, because I feel even American industrial revolution history is vitally important because it refutes their argument on this. Okay. Because there are several myths that you hear about the children. You hear a myth about how they were, you know, poorly exploited, right? You hear, and, and, and people are probably thinking to themselves, how can he say that? They, they, were, they were, you know, they were living under these terrible conditions and all the rest of it. And, and, and then there's the myth that um, the children were, you know, badly beaten up, etc. in the factories by the factory owners. And it may have like, happened. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, you, like you say, this myth, the, the one where they say, if it wasn't for government, these children would be working endless hours for such little pay within these factories or for, for in, in such poor conditions and, and, and that they and, and they point to existing factories, let's yeah. say in Southeast Asia or, or wherever, South America. Yeah. Here's the here's the thing, because here's because this is the, the, the myth that you had pointed out. Well you're asking myself about the one where they say, Oh, they were forced into working into these factories and they're working endless endless hours for such little pay and, and the myth that it was the government that was the saviour. <laughs> right. First and foremost, the Industrial Revolution, it is wrong to judge the 1840s to today's living standards because it is irrational to measure that time period. Because let's look at it from a picture. A picture is a still image. You could look at a picture from the 1840s and say, oh, look how awful the living standards and living conditions were. Oh, they were so awful, they were deplorable. Yeah. And then say, look at today's living standards and uh, 
draw your conclusion from that. But what's the problem with that? This still image from the 1840s does not tell you the information of what life was like before then. So therefore, in order to judge progress, you do not judge it by comparing today's living standards to that period. You judge it by what was life like in the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s? What was life like? The fact of the matter was, and this is the truth, before the Industrial Revolution, across the entire world, there was periodical famines, right? The living conditions were deplorable. And there was a socialist historian, E.P. Thompson, who was forced into concession to concede to the very fact that living conditions, that living standards had actually improved between 1790 to 1840. He conceded to this fact. He also conceded to the fact that children had always worked. This is a socialist historian, remember. A socialist historian, E.P. Thompson, saying that children had always worked as climbing boys, as ship boys, before. Even if it was just, even even if it was just in the fields and then agricultural, yeah. but worked with and, their families. And this is, this is it, because this was before the factories. E.P. Thompson was saying that before the earliest poorest factory conditions, the children had always worked, in his, and, and he said in his own words that they were probably worse off in those conditions. Now, you could look at the factories and they say, well, they, they forced the children and, and women into working in them. Incorrect. What really happened was the fact that the mothers, they had no food to cook with, the children had no food on their tables, they were dying of starvation. The average life expectancy of a child was the age of nine. The average life expectancy of an adult was the age of about 40. And most children did not live past uh, that age. We've got a, a historian from uh, the, the 1730s, Edward Gibbon, who came out in, the, in his own words, basically saying that he named several of his children Edward, and it wasn't because he was obsessed over the name. He named several of the children Edward simply because he knew that his children were not going to live, or most of them were not going to live past that life expectancy, that about the age of nine. Most of them weren't going to survive. So he wanted to keep Edward within his, his family to, to pass on. And so... We know from that evidence, even from what historians are writing, that the life expectancy, etc. So here's the thing. They moved into working in the factories because it was a way for them to get out of the misery that they were living in. Now, yes, we understand today those living conditions, the working conditions in the factories were deplorable. Dark no, mills. Yes. Yeah. And no one would ever deny that. But the question is, what was the working and living conditions like before the earliest poorest factory conditions? And we can draw a comparison to prove that conditions had improved. After all, this, this is socialist historian E.P. Thompson conceded by saying that in the 1840s, living conditions were dark, they were smelly, they were, they were pretty poor. But 
if you were to compare what they were living in in those industrial townhouses in the 1840s to where they came from, living in hovels in the countryside, where yes. had yes. no windows or nothing, and you, you, could, you could freeze to no, yeah, no heat in the winter, yeah. You have to bear in mind, people who don't know this already, that for the majority of history, the majority of people were living on the today's equivalent of about $3 a day, right? Before the Industrial Revolution, people used to fight over the clothes of plague victims, right? Getting a new garment, buying a garment, or getting the material to buy a garment was something that the average person could look forward to doing once in their life. Yes. So yes, people moved from the countryside to the factories in hope of gaining a better standard of living. And mm -hmm. they did, as evidenced by the fact that there's so much more stuff now than there was back then. Yeah. We've got all these buildings, railways, roads. If we didn't have them, we'd yeah. be back to working 57 hours a week, which is what they they worked at 1870, by the way. Maybe before that was even yep. more hours than that. Now, the average person works 37 and a half hours a week. Correct. So because we benefit from the stuff yep. that people have made before we were born, in the same way, during the period of Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. more stuff was being created than used up. So people's standards of living were climbing, Yep. And what's more, if you think that government can stop child labour, mm -hmm. look at what happened in Bangladesh where they banned it recently. Yeah, Children yeah. went into starvation, begging and prostitution because those factories were their least worst option. And yep. it should be added that I believe poverty is halved in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know. So, so the factories are actually improving people's standards of living. Yeah. What's more, if they had a free market in Bangladesh, so many more companies would go there that they'd bid up the price yeah. of wages and that development would happen even faster. Yeah. But people stopped sending their kids to work as soon yeah. as they had enough wealth to. That's and exactly. they got that wealth by accumulating it over time, year after year, creating more stuff than they consumed. Correct. Because this is so, the so are we saying that, that child labour was already on its way out by the time government got because around? this is the point that I'm going to get to it actually was not the government that was the saviour because as you're saying there it wasn't a case that they were forced into working the factories the fact was I mean, did everyone throughout history just fucking hate their kids or something like that? Were they just doing it for fun? <laughs> the factory owners never held the power to even force children into working in them, and I'll cover that in a wee second. The most important fact here is the fact that something unprecedented happened, and this is where I speak about the real wage earnings, right? Because before the factories, an agrarian style of economy, yeah. right? The earliest poorest factories, in real fact, actually paid substantially more than what they were getting paid prior to that. And we've got statistical evidence, even by NFR Crafts, that touches upon the issue to do with real wage earnings. Now, in the United States of America, during the first industrial revolution, you saw real wage earnings increase by 1.6%. 
on average for the average poor person of society. Something unprecedented happened in Great Britain. In other words, unprecedented, we know that it means that it's never been seen before, never existed before. So between 1780 to 1820, real wage earnings were increasing by 0.55% per year, right? Get this, for, because in that period, 0.55%, okay, maybe not sound much, might be sound slow, mm -hmm. right? Within that first 40 That's years, period, that was unprecedented, right? So 0.55% between 1780 to 1820, and then between 1820 to 1850, the real wage earnings increased by 1.2% on average per year for the average poor person of society. Now, what's so important about that? Well, we know that the average poor person of society was growing richer from the real wage earnings. They were getting paid substantially more, but here's the most important thing. Here's where you, you, you measure between what was before the Industrial Revolution compared to 1850, right? If we were to look at between 1650 to 1700, you had three class groups. You had your aristocracy, who made up 2% of the population, right? Now, wealth, yeah. wealth in that period was largely measured by building and land ownership, right? Because there wasn't really that much around in that period. Therefore, wealth measurement in that period between 1650 to 1700 would be vastly different to 1850 because there was a lot more produced, a lot more to go around in terms of wealth, so it's a bit different. But between 1650 to 1700, the three class groups, you had the aristocracy, who made up 2% of the population, middle class made up 8% of the population, and the working class made up 90% of the population, right? The aristocracy in that period held basically 80% of the wealth. So they basically owned most of everything. There was very little left for the, the middle class and the working class. How much did the working class own? Well, the working class owned 10% of the wealth. Likewise, the middle class owned the same 10% of the wealth, right? So the, the middle class and the working class were equally poor. Basically, that's how it was. So moving on, because this was before the Industrial Revolution, moving on, if you were to compare that period to 1850, in 1850, although the aristocracy still made up 2% of the population, it dropped from 80% of the wealth to 30% of the wealth. Now, although it was only 30% of the wealth, they were richer, but the point being, they held, they held less of over the whole of society, if you get what I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah. The middle class went from 8% of the population up to 58% of the population. Wow, that's amazing. Right? And here's the thing. The middle class moved from what was 10% of the wealth up to 50% of the wealth. And the working class dropped from 90% of the population, 90%, and dropped right down to about 40% of the population and moved up from 10% of the wealth to 20%. So the point being, the rich grew richer 
and the poor grew richer. It's just the case that the poor moved up the ladder. Right. And I'd like to come back to that point yeah. of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, or <laughs> everyone getting richer, as the true case may be. But I have two points to add. One is that when you're talking about the living standards increasing by that much, at the same time as that, Britain fought three wars. The Seven Year War, which was 1756 to 1763. 1776 to 1783, of course, we had a scuffle with our American cousins. And then in 1793 to 1815, we fought against revolutionary France and against Napoleon, which was the most any country had spent in a war up to that time, I believe. So when you're hearing those living standards, right, that's despite the fact that a ton of money was actually being spent and wasted on guns and, uh, and weapons and invasions and things yeah. instead of products that would have actually increased yes. people's standards of living. And those were funded by very regressive taxes. You know, we're not saying this was a free market period in history. They were financed by excise taxes largely. And those included the import of cereals at a time when the main expenditure of the poorest people yep. in society was on bread. So funding those wars was not a benefit to the poor, mm -hmm. but we still managed significant increases in living standards. And I just have one more point, uh -huh. which is, you know, you hear this, well, let's just take money from the rich and give it to the poor, right? This happened without doing that. This happened organically. Mm -hmm. But if you had gone to the, the, yep. the factory owners and you'd taken their money and just mm -hmm. distributed it towards between everyone evenly, what probably everyone would have got was like, I don't know, a table leg or, you know, maybe a whole chair if they were lucky. Yeah. And that money would not have been reinvested by those rich people into the machines that drove the price of everything down mm -hmm. and produced all of the products yeah. that made people more wealthy. And this is something that people have to understand about how average people get wealthy, which is by the price of goods falling. Yeah. And in the 19th century in America, from 1800 to 1896, prices fell by about 20% in the United States, mm -hmm. which means that even if you were getting the same wage, your same wage would have been able to buy more. The interesting point because you were making there was obviously about the whole thing to do with the fact that there was a difference, and this was something I was going to quickly touch upon, and uh, thanks for reminding me about that, because when you compare a 1780 to 1820 with 0.55% to that of the 1.2% on average per year between 1820 to 1850. There, there was a reason for that difference. And that reason is essentially because when government was basically forcing us into all of these wars, mm. in other words, it's government's fault and levying all those taxes, we must remember is the very fact that when that 70 year war, when it ended in about 1815, and leading on, that's why there's a difference, because as soon as government laid off, uh, people were better off, and that was proven by the 1.2% on average per year. Now, here's the thing, because this is in relation to do with the child labour laws, right? Because mm -hmm. this is it. 
as I say, uh, the children were dying of starvation um, and, and the mothers had no food to cook with. Therefore, they went to work in the factories. But here's the thing. When I said the factory owners didn't have the power to force them into working in them, there were two different types of children. The children who lived under the state, they're probably orphans, and they and yeah. what we call free children. Now, the free children were the, the children who lived with their mothers. And it is a fact that the, the mothers had the power to prevent their children from working in those dangerous in the dangerous factories. Yeah. Yep. But the reason why the, the mothers never is because there wasn't really a choice. If the children never, they were going to die of starvation. So it was a case they never had really an option. But here's the thing. As American history proves to us, their real wage earnings were rising by 1.6% per year. Mm. And as families grew richer and wealthier, and of course as working hours were reducing, and there was more wealth in the families, they could then afford to keep their children out of the workplace. They sent them home and they sent them to school. All of this had codified long before government laid down any labour laws. And this is this is an historical fact. This is what happened in America. They were sending their children home into school long before keeping them out of the dangerous workplace long before child labour laws were even put into place. So the government was not the saviour. As you were saying, the working hours reducing as machines were coming into place. Now, I, I, I kind of look at this from a funny analogy and you and people can grasp it it's a bit like Milton Friedman's example that if you gave people spoons to go out and do a project where they did to big a, a massive big you know hole with the, you know spoons right and and, and you've got to remember before the industrial revolution they never really had they never had the machines they never had the technology that we do today if you were to compare how they gathered crops, comparing farming back then, it would have taken them far longer to gather those crops. It would have taken far longer to do, and they would have gained less in quantity. Right. So for what they could have done within the space of two weeks, a farmer today with one of those big massive harvesters that just plows through a field. Mm. A, ma a massive harvester could do that within the space of one hour. In fact, probably yeah. less than that, probably collect yeah. more than that in less than an hour. And, and that's the point. The point being was the fact that we People can- became more productive. Yes, we can now, because we're more productive because of the machines, we can now collect more in quantity for more to go around, and that's the reason why we can do it in a lesser period of time at less of an effort. Therefore, it frees up time to go and do other chores. Prime example, inventions such as the washing machine come into place and, and dishwashers and all the rest of it. People yeah, can now multitask. People can now, oh, look, here's dishy, stick it in the dishwasher, press the button, stick closing the, the washing machine. Yeah, it's like a dinner in the microwave. Yeah, exactly. And and go away and, and, and iron their clothes and they never had this luxury before then. 
and, and even something as small as, for example, the invention of the refrigerator that enables us so much ease of how we store food because before then it was much more of an effort. And, and, and that's the point. All of these machines enabled us the freedom to free up our space and time to, you know, have more luxurious... Yeah, now people get boards, you know. It's amazing that when you think about what we have, you can listen to capitalism is just about materialism. Okay, it is true. Some people are... Do you know that some people are so poor that the only thing they have is money? Jeez. <laughs> you know, that's true. Of course, that's there's more to life than money, you know, but you have to admit, if your material needs are not met, yeah. you're hardly going to be thinking about enjoying a Beethoven symphony or a Wagner opera, which you can now enjoy more or less for free on YouTube now. The lowest class person in this society has access to art, to literature. They can go to the theatre. Okay, maybe if they're poor, toilet, they can toilet even paper. go. <laughs> toilet paper. We have... <laughs> Or just a toilet in the yes. room. You yes. can get better dental care than the richest person in the world would have got before the Industrial Revolution. And all of this was achieved by the beauty, sorry lefties, of the free market. None of it by government. Mm -hmm. This is what the market does. It focuses production on what people want. And coming back to that, you know, oh, well, it's, it's just... It's just catering to the rich. There's yeah. a great quote from Hayek. Once yeah. the rise in the position of the lower classes gathers speed, catering to the rich ceases to be the main source of great gain and gives place to efforts directed towards the needs of the masses. Those forces which at first make inequality self-accentuating thus later tend to diminish inequality. And we might hear of inequality today, but let's face it, materially, we've never been so equal in our lives. A rich person has a toilet, you have a toilet. They can't afford a much better internet connection than you, or a much better pair of shoes, or a couch. You know, maybe they can get a better car than you, but if you're a middle class or even a poor person, Many of you will still have cars. Materially, we've never had it so equal throughout all of history in the West. It's true because, um, and this all relates back to uh, the healthcare. Because, and I remember watching um, Jeremy Corbyn coming out and saying, oh, if it wasn't for the NHS and socialism, we wouldn't have, you know, this world-class healthcare system and oh, how everybody was dying and... Uh, and it's exploiting people who really don't truthfully understand the history. And again, because, like I said, if you go back to about 1760, roughly about the start of the you know first industrial revolution, as I said, life expectancy of the average you know children was about the age of nine, and the average adult was about the age of forty. The truth was, between 1760. To the year 1919, remember the NHS didn't come about until 1948. Mm -hmm. Between mm -hmm. that period alone, between 1760 to 1919, the population of Britain more than tripled and life expectancy 
more than doubled. So the rhetoric about, oh, uh, before the NHS, that everybody was all dying. They were all, what that doesn't take into account was the fact that between 1760 to the late 1800s, the life expectancy and, of course, population had vastly improved. And, and, and year in, year out, there was new medical discoveries even into the 1900s. And this wasn't because of the state. This was because of the freedom of the people able to, you know, come up with these medical discoveries to better improve people's lives. So year in, year out, healthcare was improving. Not because some government decided to come in and say, well, here's healthcare. <laughs> it, was, it was actually because the free market made that possible. Right. And you have got a couple of videos on healthcare and the NHS. And, and I fear we're getting into a big topic that we can yeah. do a whole show on, and perhaps yeah, we will. But I, in the meantime, can you signpost people to your work on healthcare? And I also have a presentation on healthcare on YouTube. Maybe I'll add it to the podcast feed okay. one time. If you just type Anthony Samaroff healthcare, signpost people to your presentations on healthcare. Right now, because of the fact I've just started this relatively new channel and I'm now partnered through the only libertarian network on YouTube and I'm, I fully support what they're doing because they seek to grow other YouTube channels and they seek to, seek yeah. to get libertarians to uh, collaborate with each other, which is a really good network. Because I recently just started with this, hmm. what I'm doing is I'm taking videos that I had from that channel. So I'm going to take the healthcare videos, put them onto this channel that i've got and it's it's under the name libertarian scott now there's two libertarian scott channels the libertarian scott channel that has about 70 odd subscribers i'm going to delete that because unfortunately i messed something up and i couldn't get partnered through it right that was a mistake so that will get deleted the one that's got about 39 subscribers once I've got enough. Well, by the time people see this, you're going to be huge again, like you were. So totally, man. So, <laughs> well, that's the, so, the main. The main thing is, is that I will put those videos. I, I try. I try to confine it down to about six minutes or so to try and you know hammer home the point because I know a lot of people and I, I don't. I'm not being derogatory towards people, but yeah, people do have yeah. a shorter attention span, and <laughs> I yeah, can yeah. understand that. But if I can get the message across to people why things were the way they were with the healthcare and a short, snappy message in yeah, that yeah. manner, then it, it hits home. And that's what I want to do. I want to get that across onto the, the channel. And, and, and people will be able to find you at the Libertarian Scott, which is a great name for your channel because your name's Scott, eh? And yep. you're a Scott. See what so, he did there. So <laughs> do you want to... Well, do you, I'm just wondering if we, I mean, I don't know how this thing works, I'm a bit of Luddite, unfortunately. What's the, do we have any comments or anything like that? This I'm going to see if we can take some comments from YouTube, if people have been watching. It's been fluctuating. We went, we, I think we've reached a peak of 10 viewers at one point. And, and of course, this will stay and on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for those people who are watching. By the way, can I just say, that just as a Scottish Liberty podcast, I want to say hello to our latest uh, subscriber, which is the newly born uh, Finlay William Laird, uh, my brother David. His, his missus had a baby just the other day. So hi to the newest uh, libertarian, hopefully, in the land. And um, 
I don't know if we'll be able to address, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground. There's there's every reason why we could do a second one because we didn't fully address, well, what about today? Do the rich get richer and the poor get poorer today? Nor did we maybe go fully into why the free market it creates monopolies. And we could say a lot more about how the market enriches the poor and how um, government doesn't enrich the poor than we've said. Um, so we need to hear from you guys who like watching the show if you could if you would like us to continue you know to to, 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 to do a second episode and if you want to want to see the three of us debunk more myths about capitalism what myths would you like to see us debunk yeah because if we don't hear from from our viewers we don't know what you guys want yeah now the comments haven't come up on on YouTube but if you're dying to leave a comment, then you can do it when you watch this video post hoc and we'll perhaps read them out on our next show or our next collaboration with Scotty and we'll get back to you. And it doesn't matter if you're a libertarian or if you're a socialist, it doesn't matter if you're on the alt-right or a conservative. The only stupid question is the one that wasn't answered or the one that Mark Conaghan asked last time we did a live cast, which is how can I be ha so hairy and have so little hair at the same time? <laughs> that was a stupid question. I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a burning question for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have anything to add, Scotty, before we, we wrap up? Oh, I think everything, um, I mean, we briefly at least showed that from that period there was the and we're not saying that that was a completely free market period either. Yeah. We're just saying that there was less government then than yeah. there is now. And yet we saw astonishing increases in living standards. And yeah. um, perhaps next time we can go in more into how government hampers living standards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I would happily go along with that. And uh, like I say, definitely within a, a second, we'll probably go on about the... The monopolies and, and yes. even yes. even with the Reagan period, because there's an important period with the Reagan period that we yeah. saw, you know, the myth where they say the rich got rich and poor got poorer. So we'll touch upon those things. And um, if you look at the average person's pay packet today and what they can actually buy with that money in the shops, it's more. It's not less. Yeah. You can buy more with the same pay packet today in the shops than you could 50 years ago. And what's more, the quality of the goods is better. You know, a TV of the same price from 30 years ago was a much crapper TV than you get with that money today. Mm -hmm. So, and that's not to mention that in a lot of cases, employee benefits have increased. But to leave people on a cliffhanger, your parents could probably afford to buy a house and also at some time one breadwinner could provide a middle class income whereas that's not necessarily the case anymore sometimes both parents have to work so we'll need to talk about why that is yeah and is it because of the free market so tune in next time awesome thanks for joining us man oh, thank you so much for joining us uh, i thought it was a great collaboration Yes, and to you people out there, be libertarians. Yep, too right. Don't be a lefty or a righty. Yeah, don't be too right. <laughs> <laughs> <See you later. laughs>